I mean, I think we like to think of Minnesota as being this great state that is able to kind of help our neighbors like South Dakota, where there was no access to abortion for seven months in the beginning of the pandemic, um, or, um, you know, other states in our, in our region that have um, few providers or even more laws in place and restrictions than we do. But for the most part, We've we've been susceptible to a lot of those those trap laws and um, restrictions that are harmful to patients. We're rolling. We're rolling. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 So I rarely get the chance to talk to a public health expert. Do you do you find yourself having to be like a lawyer slash political scientist slash reproductive health scholar? Like a lot of times public health is apolitical, not so much recently, but uh on this, you kind of have to be a bunch of different things all at once, right? It's interesting because at the end of the day, I don't have a law degree. I only know about like the legal politics about things like reproductive health um, and structural racism, which is another one of the things that I study um, through through what I read. Um, but what I can um, really emphasize when I'm talking to people, when people ask me these public health questions is really like what the health data tells us about how these things are connected um, and how, you know, there's legal, there's legal ramifications, there's health ramifications for all of the legal decisions we make uh, when we choose to have things like restrictions that of course has, has an effect on people's lives. Um, so that's kind of usually what I try and focus on and remind people that I'm not a legal scholar, but, you know, one of the things that has really happened post pandemic is of course, this is a field that is increasingly regardless of what people's specific topics of interest are, or what they specifically study has become um, way more politicized. So you're absolutely right with that. I'm going to introduce the show officially. This is the wedge live podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards. Uh, and so last week, a draft opinion was leaked signaling the U.S. Supreme Court's intention to overturn 50 years of precedent and demolish the idea of a constitutionally protected right to an abortion. So I reached out to Asha Hassan, a reproductive health scholar and researcher pursuing a Ph.D. at the University of Minnesota. Uh, do I have all of that correct? That is correct. Um, I am a going into my third year of my PhD, and I study reproductive health um, generally. I'm really interested in you know family planning, um, abortion care, but especially how it relates to health inequities and um, larger structural issues like structural racism. And I do a lot of that work at the Center for Anti-Racism Research for Health Equity um, at the University of Minnesota. Can you talk about your initial reaction when you heard the news and maybe like we're about a week later, uh, are we getting anything wrong? Are we missing anything in the initial reactions to it? Or is it just a, a big obvious problem and uh, and we know we know what the impacts will be? 
we definitely don't know what the all the impacts will be. And I think a lot of the things that we are talking about in this moment are, you know, expectations or projections. Um, but I, I think the way this shakes out is really, we, we, I don't think we fully understand what the, what, what is going to happen. Um, when I first heard about, um, you know, the leak on Tuesday of last week, it was both shock and, you know, un, but, but both shocked and unsurprised. I mean, we knew this was probably what the decision was going to be, um, you know, in October when we were listening to, you know, so the sort of questions that the judges were um, were asking and, you know, their perspectives. And it, it was very clear that it was not going to be a favorable uh, ruling or a favorable decision. Um, and there was really kind of two ways it could have gone. It could have just gone to, um, you know, limiting and eroding um, Roe significantly uh, or completely overturning it. Um, and even though I think we were definitely suspicious that it was going to be this this overturning that we're seeing, at least in the leak, um, which, of course, is not confirmed, but um, it's, not, it's not final. Um, but that that was that was probably the way things were going to go and we were expecting to go. Um, so for the most part, people who are in the reproductive health world, abortion providers um, have been advocates have been working towards thinking about what safety nets uh, can we provide? How do we live in a world where, for the most part, half of all people, uh, you know, who have uteri, who are of reproductive age, um, will not have access to abortions within their state? What does that mean for states like Minnesota that will probably retain that right? Um, all of those questions have been talked about and, and, you know, people have been wrestling with those questions for months and months. Um, but actually seeing, you know, that this is really what's happening. It, it, was, it, it was still a shock. Um, as much as you prepare for something like this, it's it'll always be a shock. Yeah. And so you say in some ways it's, it's entirely expected while still being shocking. Yeah. It's been a long road to this. Like, uh, right wingers have, have been on the path to making it harder and harder to access what is technically a legal right to an abortion for decades. And so with thing, things like trap laws targeted at, at uh, abortion providers, that things that other medical providers don't have to comply with, but they do, makes it very difficult for them to operate in certain states. Uh, can you talk about that a, lo- a little bit? Like the, the long road that we've been on towards this that makes it not quite, not quite a surprise. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we're often talk about Minnesota as being the safe state. Um, we're one of the states that will probably be able to retain abortion rights um, or, or some semblance of what we consider Roe v. Wade after this decision um, comes down. But at the end of the day, we, like many other states, have significant restrictions that are not medically necessary. Um, some examples of that is that in the state of Minnesota, doctors or providers have to are mandated to give um, 
scripting language um, that includes things that are not medically accurate, um, including saying that abortions are linked to breast cancer um, and other medically inaccurate or unnecessary information. Uh, we have 24-hour waiting periods in, in Minnesota, which means a patient has to come in and go through that consent process, go home, or in many cases, because we have a very large rural population in our state, um, get a hotel or some other sort of um, accommodation that costs a lot of money in order to come in the next day uh, for when they can legally have their abortion, when that's not a medically necessary thing. Uh, we have significant restrictions on minors um, who have to get parental authorization or go through a judicial bypass pro process, um, which is a, a lot to ask minors to try and try try and navigate. Um, so, so, and, and you know, the list goes on. I mean, we have restrictions that on who can provide abortions in the state. Advanced nurse practitioners cannot provide provide abortions while they can in other states. Um, so there's a lot of things that we can do better and have over time, I mean, these laws have been rolling in really mostly just for the last 20 years. This is not something that has been um, a long, um, a long standing, a long standing thing. It's increasingly been something that um, has been added and each cycle there is more and more um, bills that are proposed that add more and more restrictions. So these, of course, I mean, I think we like to think of Minnesota as being this great state that is able to kind of help our neighbors like South Dakota, where there was no access to abortion for seven months in the beginning of the pandemic, um, or, um, you know, other states in our, in our region that have um, few providers or even more laws in place and restrictions than we do. But for the most part, we've we've been susceptible to a lot of those those trap laws and um, restrictions that are harmful to patients. I, I have to apologize for not knowing some of these things because I'm one of those people who thought, well, Minnesota is is the place where people come when they don't have access in other places. But asking someone to take 24 hours if they've traveled from far away from a place that where they don't have access. And they, and they come to the Wedge neighborhood, for example, where we happen to have mm -hmm. a clinic. They have to wait 24 hours, adding to their the cost to access it. Absolutely. And, you know, the one thing I like to emphasize is that there a lot of, a lot of people that come to, um, you know, Minnesota or people who are residents of Minnesota who are seeking abortion care are already parents. Um, they might have to deal with things like childcare. Um, they're for the most part low income. So taking off time from work is, is not um, always an accessible or easy solution. Sometimes people are forced because of these laws to you know, go back to work the next day um, or even the same day um, in ways that is incredibly unfair. And you know, at the end of the day, these are because of medically unnecessary reasons. So we've got a lot of culture war in our politics. And I think we, we will boil down the abortion issue as like a team sport. Like I'm in favor of abortion rights and, and the bad people are against it, but it's, you're a public health expert. This is a public health issue. It affects people's lives. Can you speak in general terms 
about the public health consequences of depriving people of the right to an abortion? Um, I think a lot of this really comes down to, I mean, I think there's lots of ways to think about this. We can think about what we already know um, and what we suspect. So some of the things that we already know is that people who are denied abortions have worse outcomes over over time in a, in a whole host of different um, categories, their, their economic health, um, their, you know, mental health, all of these things can be potentially impacted. And we have lots of data that indicates that. Um, but some of the things that sometimes get falls through the cracks is the fact that people have, you know, an entire life course, right? So having this event in your life that is, is denied, if you're being denied an abortion, can later on impact things like your maternal health. Like if you are, did you decide to have children later on? Um, one of the things that we have estimates on is that with the maternal mortality crisis that happened, that is happening in the United States, that we can expect an increase in pregnancy related deaths um, as a consequence of these abortion restrictions. Um, abortions are significantly safer than giving birth. And um, because of that, that, that gap that is potentially going to be um, increasing, we, we're, gonna, we're going to probably have an increase in, in, in maternal mortality in this country and morbidity. And that's probably going to be um, disproportionately harmful to communities of color, low-income folks, younger folks, um, who are already struggling to get through these barriers that we've put in place. So you, your pinned tweet uh, is a reminder, and I'm quoting from your tweet, a reminder that abortion restrictions are functionally racist. Can you unpack that and uh, explain, yeah. explain how that works? Yeah. So I think a couple of things to recognize here is that... Um, Nationally, BIPOC folks are overrepresented in the abortion population. I think it's like a little over 50-60% of the people that receive abortions are um, BIPOC folks. Um, in Minnesota, that's a little bit under half. I think it's around 47, it's 47%. And what happens, or the reason why that's the case is because of you know, the impact of poverty, impact of healthcare access, um, you know, racism that exists within the healthcare system, all of these barriers that we've put in place um, because of structural racism that exists in our, in our larger society, of course, are going to impact the, um, the amount of unwanted pregnancy that surfaces in populations that are uh, marginalized. Um, so when abortions happen, they of course are going to inherently disproportionately affect these populations. Um, and we know that when restrictions happen um, from, you know, from the long history of restrictions is that people who are most privileged in our communities are still for the most part are able to um, surpass the barriers that are put in place. They can fly to another state. Um, they can you know, fly to another country if need be. Um, so that, that is really what I mean by sort of the functionality of it when it comes down to it, who is going to be disproportionately harmed. Um, BIPOC populations are a, a, a large proportion of that. 
Um, and I think, you know, I talked a little bit about the maternal mortality crisis that is for the most part, you know, something that we see with all populations, but for the most part, the majority of people who are um, disproportionately experiencing maternal mortality are, are black and indigenous populations specifically. Um, and some of those projections that talk about what we can potentially expect with the overturning of Roe v. Wade and an increase in pregnancy-related deaths um, disproportionately is, is for, for Black and Indigenous populations. I think the overall population, the overall increase for all populations is, I think, 21%. And then for um, Black patients, it would be 30-something percent. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's important to really center that when we're talking about this, because how we want to think about policy, how we want to think about interventions, how we want to think about support, um, really should be centering on the people that are going to be most impacted by some of these um, changes. And so we have a potential ban or, or depriving of this right to an abortion overlaid on top of a lot of existing inequities in the healthcare system, whether that's implicit bias from healthcare providers or simply like poverty and lack of access to the healthcare. Even if the, the healthcare system was colorblind, the, the society, society has the structural racism that deprives people of access. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that. No, that's a great, a great reframe, reframe. And I think that's the goal of what I was trying to trying to articulate. We'll be right back after these messages. So you will, if we can't get Taylor on the line, you will play the role of Debian sales and perhaps respond to my reading of the ad. That's all that. Did you see Taylor's version of the I have. ad recording? Yeah. Wedge Live is sponsored by Dispatch. Sending you reports from the bustling Minneapolis and St. Paul arts and culture scene. For May, Dispatch welcomes us all back to Filmtown with a profile on the return of the MSP Film Society in their new home at St. Anthony, Maine. Plus, there's the return of the Red Eye Theater, comedian Maggie Ferris's new album, the Catterwall Music Festival, and much more. Check it out at dispatchmsp.com. That's dispatchmsp.com. How'd that go? Um, it was all right. So let's talk about local government. Did you see that, uh, that question from the Hennepin County, uh, candidate forum where they asked if, and this was before the leak from the Supreme court. And the question was, if you're elected, would you use your discretion to not prosecute, uh, crimes related to a potential uh, criminalization of abortion. And uh, one one candidate said uh, that he wouldn't, or he would have to think about it. So there wasn't, it wasn't un- unanimous. And it got me thinking about, I mean, abortion has not seemed relevant to local, I follow local campaigns a lot. It hasn't seemed relevant to that to me in, in previous years. And it feels like, well, now it probably is. It, so what should we expect from local, whether it's city council or a county attorney or the county county commission, what should we expect from local elected officials that they have not had to do previously? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of times we think of um, the abortion fight really being at the federal level. We think about it potentially being at the state level, uh, more so the state level now, I think, um, as this decision potentially comes down. Um, but there is a lot that can be done at the local level. I think a lot of the times this is not a question that's given to city council members or, um, you know, mayors. They're not really pressed on this issue because we don't we don't like to think of um, these, you know, abortion restrictions as really something that's in, in the hands of these politicians at this local level. Uh, but there's so much they can do. Um, some examples of that. I know, uh, you know, some cities, I believe, Austin, um, New York uh, have allocated funds to um, establishing abortion abortion funds within their city. Um, the The cities themselves have so much power within regulations around anti choice protesters. So potentially establishing, um, you know, barriers and, and 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 barrier zones and that sort of thing around. Um, some of these clinics that are providing this care. Um, I think these are only, these type of like policy decisions are only able to come about when there's consensus within city councils and there's the will to provide that sort of um, support um, from, 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 local, from local government. Although I don't necessarily think that we're going to have to rely so much on um, you know, these questions around what, um, who is going to be prosecuted and who isn't going to be prosecuted in, in our state. Uh, I mean, I, I hope not. Um, these are, these are definitely questions that are going to have to be asked in other, in other cities and municipalities to better understand where prosecutors stand, um, when they're deciding how they're going to handle, handle these, these cases. I mean, there's some examples in Texas recently of people um, being criminalized for seeking abortion care, we have to figure out ways to make sure that that's not something that's happening uh, within our purview. So with the caveat that uh, Asha is not a lawyer, what what do you, are you worried about the Supreme Court doing other things? Like, oh, is there a way that this can be escalated in any way? Yeah, I, I do think about the issue of bodily autonomy generally. So the right for people to make decisions about their own bodies. Um, there's a whole host of different things that we enjoy in, in our larger society that fit into that, um, inc- including, you know, having the right to, um, you know, trans care, um, gender affirming care. Um thinking about um, some of these questions that are surfacing around IVF um, and, um, you know, the right, you know, the right to marry. Um, All of these things are about who has the power to determine what you can do with your body. um, That to me, you know, undermining Roe v. Wade is, is 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 essentially potentially something that can be undermining to all of those other things that are really important to establishing that right to bodily autonomy. So I consider myself, um, you know, somebody who 
follows um, a reproductive justice lens, which means um, my my work really focuses on supporting people and having the right um, to to get pregnant, the right to not be pregnant, um, bodily autonomy, the right to parent in um, you know safe neighborhoods and it's to parent their children in safe and sustainable environments. Um, and all of those things really require having, you know, this, this decision-making power and, and, you know, the empowerment and autonomy to make these decisions about someone's own body. When, when you see headlines about uh, contraception related to this, it starts to feel like, and, and right-wing politicians, elected officials trying wanting to go further and, and deny people contraception and things like that. It feels like a, it's a forced, it's a forced pregnancy agenda, really, to me, sometimes. I don't want to unfairly characterize the pro-life position, but it, it feels like it, go, it goes to that length. You know, there's like this perspective, I think, in um, the reproductive health world um, that, you know, if we just explain what the harm is, if we just focus in on, you know, these issues like how abortion restrictions are impacting maternal mortality, or if we explain how, um, you know, abortion patients end up having, or, or people who are denied abortions end up having um, worse economic outcomes. If, 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 we, if we show the harm, then that will change people's minds. Um, and I, I don't know if I subscribe to that belief um, because, I mean, I think, you know, these are the sort of examples that you're pointing out, these issues with contraception care that are surfacing. Um, and, you know, ectopic pregnancies is another one where I think a lot of people just don't fully understand that there's no situation where an ectopic pregnancy will ever be viable, right? The, the treatment for that is essential to save someone's life. And I think there's like a position where people think that that just goes over some of these folks' heads and, and, that, and that's why they're fine with having legislation banning ectopic pregnancies uh, or banning ectopic pregnancy treatment. Um, but I think you're right. I think there's an element to it where there's a fundamental disrespect for bodily autonomy and having people be able to make these decisions. What should normal, we've talked about what elected officials should do. What should a normal person do in response to this? Uh, whether that's political activism, uh, asking of certain things from their government, what should we be doing or, or being, uh, or be aware of? Yeah, I think there's a lot that can be done. I mean, right now, donating to some of these abortion funds, um, we have one in, in, in Minnesota, if someone, um, you know, really wants to help out in other states, they can they can donate to those abortion funds as well. Um, abortion funds help uh, people navigate barriers to abortion care, including the financial barriers, as well as some of these, um, you know, support needs like childcare and transportation and that sort of thing. Um, Volunteering. Uh, many abortion clinics have escort programs that allow for uh, volunteer escorts for um, people to usher in patients um, uh, 
uh, into the into the clinic uh, past protesters. Um, people can speak to the representatives. Again, this is a multi-level issue. I think there's things that we can do at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level. We've talked a little bit about the local level, but there's legislation at the state level that um, can be passed to protect and codify um, our Supreme Court decision that supports um, abortion rights um, in Minnesota. We have a similar um, ruling in Minnesota within the um, Minnesota Supreme Court that protects abortion rights, um, but we, we can codify that into law. I think that would be um, a way better way to um, solidify the, the support that the state has for, for these issues. Um, there's going to be, you know, national protests, I think on May 14th, there's going to be a day of um, a rally to support abortion rights at the St. Paul Vandalia Clinic, um, Planned Parenthood Clinic. Um, and this is going to be a national day of protests to um, voice uh, concern about these issues. Is it okay if I give your Twitter handle out? Do sure. you want people to follow you on Twitter? Do you want that in your life? Um, I want is, <laughs> want is an interesting word. I mean, I'll definitely be continuing to talk about um, some of these issues and giving examples as to how um, people can participate and be involved um, in some of these issues at a local level. So that, that will be what that space is for. Okay. Uh, you can find Asha at Repro Researcher. That's on Twitter. Uh, thank, thank you so much for having this conversation. I enjoyed meeting you. I'm glad to know that you exist in the world now that I've met you. <laughs> Absolutely. I wish you were talking about Cats of the Wedge. Um, I think. Oh, have you been I, on the tour? Have you I, been on the tour? I, I have not. I, I I hope to this year. Hopefully, that would be. I have my cat sitting right here who would love to be are, a cat of the wedge. <laughs> are you in the wedge or wedge adjacent? I'm not. I'm, I'm wedge uh, adjacent. <laughs> That's what I'll okay. say. That's good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Asha Hassan has been my guest. Uh, this has been the Wedge Life Podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards. Thank you for listening. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now.